0: Perfect. All right, welcome everybody to the class that I've prepared on Sefer kohelet I'm very, very excited. Really, I uh, during oh, yeah. I'm in the middle of my surgery rotation now, and uh, you know, thank God it's pretty light. So I've been, uh, you know, I snuck downstairs. I start. I, I ordered this book a few days ago. Rabbi Hittery recommended it from uh, Michael J. Fox, but or actually Michael V. Fox, rather, not the actor, and. Uh, So it's really just amazing insights into a book that we've all heard so much about, but really it seems so much of us know so little about, um, in fact. And I think, you know, as as we get older, it's very natural to have questions. It's very natural for us to be thinking in a certain way. And I think you have to address these questions because if you run away from them, if you run away from an examined uh, philosophy of what life is, then you really are not so solid, in my opinion, in your beliefs. And in a, in a sense, if you could show yourself that you could emerge from this journey of some really scary thoughts, then you could really get through anything. And life will actually become more, you know, even deeper and even more profound. And I think your relationship with God will be more refined than it previously was. So let's, if you, you take a look at the screen, let me move this for you guys to see it. There we go. So, um, you know, we could actually, I wasn't planning on reading this one with you guys. I was planning on reading the quote at the bottom of it, but I, I'll, I'll read this one with you guys as well, just because it's so interesting. Even if there is only one possible unified theory, this is from Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time. It is just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? The usual uh, approach of... St- Science of constructing a mathematical model cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? Yeah, I mean, what is he saying? Why is there something rather than nothing? This is from one of the biggest atheists that you'll ever find on the planet. And yet he's asking a question that he thinks is not religious because he knocked out God about a couple paragraphs ago where he said something like, you know, if I had this theory of everything, I could read the mind of God. But he's completely not understanding that God should not be the explanation, but rather the answer to why. So that's just an interesting quote to look at. But the real thing I wanted to focus on before we really give an introduction to Kohelet itself is this beautiful, beautiful quote from, oh, Rabbi, this is the the pasuk I was quoting earlier. Look, you see now that I quote the same things. We understand God from the footprints in the sand. So this is a quote from Albert Einstein about the mystery. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want you to notice that so much of what Kohelet is doing is very much just a perspective. It's a, it's a specific perspective on life. And you don't have to take that perspective if you don't want to. There's different ways of approaching the limits of our knowledge. You could look at the limits of our knowledge and completely lament the fact that we don't know certain things. But at the same time, you could be in awe of the mystery And that feeling can fill you up with an amazing, amazing, you know, sensation of how small you are and how awesome everything is. So we'll just kind of skim this. He says, mystery is not restricted to whodunits. And you could continue on a little bit. Um, My favorite part of this quote is right here. The most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of true art and true science. Whoever does not know it and can uh, and can no longer wonder, no longer marvel, is as good as dead, and his eyes are dimmed. It was the mis- the experience of mystery, even if mixed with fear. Where am I? Ah, uh, sorry, thank you. Um, even if mixed with fear, that engendered religion, a knowledge of the existence of something we cannot penetrate our perceptions of the profoundest reason and the most radiant beauty, which only in their most primitive forms are accessible to our minds. It is this knowledge and this emotion that constitute true religiosity. This is Albert Einstein, who arguably knew the most that anybody has ever known about science, or, you know, at at, at least in his time, somebody that was a a giant of of worldly knowledge, somebody that we might even compare to Sholem HaMelech, if you, if you would argue that that's who wrote Kohelet, then we'll, we'll argue about that in a few minutes. But the point I'm trying to make here is look at the response that Albert Einstein has to what he doesn't know. To him, it's the most exciting thing when he doesn't understand something. The fundamental mystery about the very existence of the world, and I want to avoid this idea of God of the gaps. God of the gaps is the idea that, you know, God is really only in the areas where we, we still haven't filled them in yet. You know, we, we haven't filled in certain phenomena of science. Okay, that's God as an explanation. That's not what this is. This is the idea that the question of why can never be answered by science. And therefore, it is fundamentally a religious question. Welcome to my friend, Morris Franco, by the way, who also, uh, and Albert Mizrahi and uh, Victor Zakai. I know you guys, uh, Albert and Morris, already learned, uh, Kohelet on their own. So I'm looking forward to hearing their insights as well. Um, you know, and I, uh, of course I want to hear from all of you. Good to thank see you, you, Dr. And, uh, Orlit, and hi dad. Hi, and thank you for staying on Madeline. Let's see who else we got here. And Jason, Haban, Sophia, thank you for joining. Okay. And Julie, thank you very much. Really. I want to hear from all you guys, whenever you uh, have any questions or comments. So, and then listen to this line from Einstein. I am a deep, sorry, in this sense, and in this sense, only in this sense, I am a deeply religious man. I am satisfied with the mystery of life's eternity and with a knowledge, a sense of the marvelous. So what is the point here? What is Albert Einstein trying to say? He's trying to say that when it comes to the limits of our knowledge, we could take awe in the mystery of it and we could appreciate it. And let's contrast that with what we're going to see in Kohelet. So I'm going to try to give you a brief introduction so that we could actually begin with the text, because I think the text is really the juiciest part. So let's take a look first. At, I'll just give a, a brief couple of words about the interesting points of Kohelet that I read in this commentary from uh, Mr. Fox. So first of all, listen to this paragraph. He says, Ecclesiastes is strange, this quieting book. It gives voice to an experience not usually thought of as religious. The pain and frustration engendered by an unblinking gaze at life's absurdities and injustices. It's unblinking, it's, it's fearless to, to stare into the face of meaninglessness. The man speaking in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet sees things that are distressing to observe, the distortions and inequities that pervade the world, the ineffectuality of human deeds, so there's all these things, injustice and evil of human beings. That's one thing that makes us question the very meaning of our, our existence. The other thing is this idea of the ineffectuality of our deeds. We try to do certain things. We try to make an impact on the world. If you've ever read that poem, Ozymandias, about an ancient pharaoh, and then one man stumbles upon his, his, uh, his statue buried in the sand, like, you had this great empire, what have you become? Are you really that significant of a person like you thought you were? So that's the ineffectuality of human deeds. The frailty and limitations of human wisdom and righteousness, that's going to be a real theme in chapter one. And this awareness coexists with a firm belief in God. That's the amazing thing, is that he takes it for granted whose power justice, and unpredictability are sovereign. So the amazing thing about this book is that as heretical as certain ideas in it may seem, it may sound like he's questioning the very fundamentals of everything. He does still acknowledge that there's a creator. He does still acknowledge that there is a God who is sovereign over all of creation. And yet he's still able to ask these questions. So I think that's the beauty of it is that we could allow ourselves as well. He's inviting us as the readers to do the same. Um, he, and the, the, we shouldn't try to fit in everything in this book to traditional Judaism, because you know what? It's not traditional Judaism. And the, the Nevi'im of other Sifanim surely would not have agreed with a lot of what Kohelit's going to say. And yet they have a place in the Jewish canon. The point here is, as one of my Rasheh in Israel said, we all have heretical thoughts, and if you tell a Jew not to ask these questions, and to throw away any questions that he might have, you know what's going to happen? He's going to ask them more. He's going to be even more bothered by them. But if you allow a person to philosophize freely without calling him a heretic and say, yes, you have the right. Look, even King Solomon, or we'll, we'll debate that in a minute, who really wrote this book. But even King Solomon himself had these questions and wrote them down. So don't feel like you're alone. You have every right to ask these questions. So that's really interesting. Um, so now when it comes to the title and the author, so the word kohelet, does anybody know the shortish of the word kohelet? Can oh, exactly. What does kahal mean?
1: A gathering. A
0: gathering. Beautiful. It means a gathering. So it seems like this idea of kohelet has something to do with the person who is speaking to the gathering, the hachamim, think of it as the zimtzvav, hakel, that the king would do every seventh year on the holiday of Sukkot. And he would read the Torah to all the people. So the interesting thing about Kohelet is that it means something to do with a person of the assembly speaking to the assembly. And it's supposed to be something that is really, you know, uh, spreading to the general public, Mm -hmm. these ideas. Um, We don't have to get into the dating of when it was actually written. But, you know, it does say in the beginning that we're going to see that he declares himself as a king of Israel. But you, in the, at the end of the day, there's certain things that seem to contradict this. Because, you know, first of all, what does it say? Um, the epilogue in, at the end of the sefer does not speak of Kohelet as a king. Rather, it speaks of him as a non-royal sage. So we're going to see that, you know, it's not so clear that he's a, a king per se. Um, and he had contact with rulers so much so that he blames the royal administration for injustices. Is that something that, that Sholem Hamilich is likely to do? Would Shalom HaMelech blame the, the monarchy for things? And looking back at his life, no, he is the king. He wouldn't do that. So, so there's, there's a few different reasons. We don't, I don't want to get too bogged down into authorship here, but I love the comment that the, the, the writer of this book that I have, um says here, this is how he thinks of it. And listen closely to this. This is really interesting. This commentary assumes that Kohelet is a persona, a fictional figure. He's fictional, according to this commentary, through whom the author speaks. This persona, at least in the first two chapters, is portrayed as a king. And just because he's portrayed as a king doesn't mean that he's actually supposed to be taken by you as Solomon himself, but rather... This, this is an intellectual exercise that Kohelet is undertaking. And the author wants us to conceive of the persona's wisdom, power, and prosperity as Yani, He's like Shilamon in his level of quantity and quality of his wisdom. And we don't have to get too much into that debate about who really wrote it. Yes, question. Uh,
2: could it also be that, that he wants when, you're, when he's asking these existential questions of like, what matters? Is it all worthless? Is it possible that when the average person asks it, it's because they don't think they have enough? And if you tell it from the perspective of a king, what more can they have? And so their
0: questions are more validity. I 100% agree. That's exactly it. You have to be a person who had it all in order, and he writes that in this commentary actually, in order to be able to say, and yet I know it meant nothing. I I know one of those uh, famous actors, I was a Jim Carrey, I think he was super rich, super famous. And yet now he he kind of, he, he suffered through many years of depression. And then he came out of it with a new philosophy on life and Buddhism and all this stuff. And he said, all these people are chasing after fame and fortune. And I wish I could be the example for them, says Jim Carrey, that it's not worth it. And it will not bring you the happiness you're looking for. And it has to come from within. Or as Jonathan Haidt would say, it has to come from between. But that's a story for another time. Um, so... Ecclesiastes is considered wisdom literature we don't have to mention that too much but the interesting thing that he writes in this introduction also and I want to spend two minutes or three minutes on this so interesting is Kohelet and philosophy so Kohelet is the closest that the, that the Bible that the Tanakh comes to philosophy because it's intellectual and rational contemplation of fundamental human issues with no recourse to revelation or tradition is exactly in line with what philosophy is. It's the only book that only relies on wisdom for understanding the world and doesn't rely at all on tradition or any ideas of God explicitly as handed down through, a, through knowledge from tradition. Right, no exactly, no theology. Um, and the boldest notion in the book of Kohelet is not the pessimism it's not the observations of injustice, but rather it's the belief that the individual can and should proceed towards truth by means of his own powers of perception and reasoning. What an incredible statement. This is the most empowering book in the whole Tanakh. It's telling you that you as an individual are correct in using your intellect to analyze the world. And you have the right to an opinion. If, it were, if every other book existed except for this one, you wouldn't know that you would think I have only the right to ask the questions that the people before me asked. This is so earth shattering because it's saying, no, go out and rely on your own intellect, go out and seek truth on your own. Don't just take it for granted. What people tell you. Um, And we'll say a couple more points. Okay. So this is really interesting. Uh, He could legitimately be called the philosopher. And now if you compare Kohelet to Hellenistic philosophy of its time or Epicurean philosophy, right? The the purpose of Hellenistic philosophy in its time was to find the way to individual happiness by the use of powers of reason, exactly in line with Kohelet. Epicureans were to try to uh, uh, seeking happiness through pleasure and freedom from fear. We're gonna see a lot of those themes in this book as well. And then the Stoics, this is really interesting. They thought you could find it in the shedding of desires and passions. Uh, Both schools agreed that the inner realm of human experience is the the locus of freedom and happiness. So that's really key. You're allowed to look inwards rather than just outwards for the source of understanding of the world. Um, And then we'll end with this idea that what are the commonalities really with stoicism here, the belief in the preordination of events by God, strong restrictions on free will, the repetition of history in periodic cycles and the doctrine of the four elements fire, air, water, and earth. So we're going to get to that in a couple minutes because I want to jump into the text. But this to me is so interesting because not a lot of people know this. According to uh, what I've heard in classes from Rabbi Labaton, Rabbi Labaton, who was the rabbi in West Deal um, until a few years ago when he passed away, he had this amazing concept that in the ancient world, what was their perception of time? Their perception of time was that time is cyclical. Time continues to repeat itself and there's no meaning to time because everything is just in a cycle and we're not moving towards any point. But what was the big Hidush of the Torah? In light of maybe even Abraham Joshua Heschel's the Sabbath or the idea of Jewish history as being told in that way. And this is a hiddush that we take for granted in today's day and age. The the idea of progress. Time after the writing of of the Torah and after the, the dissemination of the ideas of the Torah, time went from being cyclical to being linear. That is, if you ever hear of one big haidush, it's probably one of the biggest you'll ever hear in your life. Yes, Abraham? But
2: the time was never really
0: cyclical, it was always linear. So, time, so I'm not talking about scientifically. I'm saying the way that humans tell the story of the world. So the way that humans told the story of time in the ancient world was... This is the cycles of nature, and that's why the caste system is is the way that it's supposed to be. People should stay in their place, because this is the way that time time cycles, and you're just going to end up back to where you were predestined to be. Judaism and the Torah were so subversive to that idea, because they said, no, the world is moving towards a destination. That might be a later rendition of the same idea, that we're fixing the world. We're bringing the world one step closer with every generation towards God, towards that shining city upon a hill. So I think without further ado, we could begin. Does anybody have any questions? I know that was a pretty quick introduction, but I think as we read through the text itself, a lot of these things will become clearer to you. Yes, question. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yes. Who, who are the other
2: authors that people would say? Okay, so
0: really the only other uh, suspicion is really from the Hachamim that it's Shalomo HaMelech. But we know from other sepharim in the Tanakh, right, like Shira Shirim, Shira Shirim Asher, Lishlomo, he says explicitly. Or what about Tehillim? Uh, not Tehillim, sorry. Um, Shida Shirim. What am I forgetting? And and Mishle. Sorry, Mishle Shalom. All right. So so, so you're right. Lishlomo also probably doesn't mean it's actually written by uh, Agreed. Yeah. But and, and this is like a double argument. Right. It's probably not Shalom just based on the idea that he purposely leaves thing. that out. He doesn't want to say that it's Shalom, but he wants you to think that he has that level of wisdom. Sorry. Yes.
2: you have more of an argument to say that. Than that he wrote, than that he wrote. Ah, because it so doesn't son, son of W. King in Jerusalem, which is
0: You're right. I so that's the thing. We're gonna we're gonna see later in the book as well that there's right. a lot of examples of things that Solomon would not say. And I don't think he wrote either. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. A Agreed. On Agreed. One. Certainly. Who had a question on Zoom? I'm I apologize. Yeah,
2: just Mike, just really quickly, as yeah, uh, just, um. So I wanted to know. Um, you said it's the only book in the Tanakh that relies on solely on wisdom. Could you say the same thing for Mishlei, or you couldn't?
0: You can't because Mishlei very much is proverbs, really, meaning things that are passed down wisdom. It's not using your own power of intellect to derive truths, and it's also very much more religious uh, is Mishlei than is Kohelet. But that's a great question.
2: But when and you the, say your own wisdom. So, in other words, you're speaking of the author using his own wisdom to write it
0: or the encouragement or narrative of the book? I'm saying the author's own wisdom is what he uses
2: to write the book
0: and to derive these ideas for wh- through which he is able to put pen to paper and write the book.
2: But with Michelet, it's, it's not the author's original work or it's half-half?
0: So, Michelet is but it's 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 i don't know sorry i don't think it's it's really his original work i think it's wisdom passed down from generations that's my impression of it yeah okay do Um, we
2: know or
1: we not sure
0: uh i think we know i think it's pretty clear from at least based on the scholars i'm not sure what the Hamim would say um one other point I, i want to make by the way before we we begin the text itself is does anybody has anybody ever heard of aaron beck the psychologist I'm trying to remember which one. cognitive behavioral therapy very good and Beck Aaron Beck has and by the way if you this is a fantastic fantastic thing Morris Frank I'm sure you you learned this also uh, Beck has a triad of of uh, what depression consists of so someone who's depressed and by the way this this helped me tremendously to avoid negative thoughts if you want to avoid negative thinking this is a fantastic way to do so just by thinking about these different extremes that we go to in the way that we think that lead us toward depression. So the first one is negative thoughts about the self. I am fundamentally bad and it's personalization is the way that he put it. And then my situation is bleak, catastrophization, and my future is dim. The future that that is in store for me is not good. And it's such black and white thinking about all three of them, but when you combine those three, that's when depression and even, God forbid, suicide could descend. So, if you notice yourself doing any of those things, then you should probably try to avoid that. So, it's about the self, it's about your situation, and it's about the future. So, I'm gonna, uh, the reason I bring up all these things I brought up Einstein and the Mysterious, I brought up Stephen Hawking, I brought up all this stuff that he mentions about philosophy, and now I'm bringing up depression. And the reason I'm doing this is because I wanna say, That you know what, he has very good points and he's asking very good questions, is kohelet. However, it's all about perspective. If there's one thing I learned just so far from reading this introduction and reading chapter one of this, this amazing book, it's that perspective matters more than anything. And that if you have the perspective where you want to ask the question of these questions in a cynical way and you want to have the perspective of, oh, because I'm limited in my wisdom, everything is futile then you can, okay, go ahead. That'll be your existence. But if you take the perspective of Einstein and Stephen Hawking, then you could have a much more beautiful perspective of awe. So I want to take that opportunity and I want you guys to do the same to notice where he gets himself into trouble. And this could apply to ourselves in our own life. I think if you gain nothing more out of this book than this idea, let it be this one idea. Notice and learn how depressive thinking comes about. How does nihilistic thought come about and how can we avoid that in our own lives? Because, you know what, meaning is not handed to us on a silver platter. It's something that we are given the task of accomplishing on our own. And he's going to do that in this book. I want to make that very clear. Kohelet is committed to the idea of finding meaning in life. He's committed to not resigning that everything is terrible because otherwise he would just commit suicide. There is a reason to go on living, and there is sources of happiness. We might not agree with what they are, but I think the point is, how do we avoid the pitfalls that we might fall into? Okay, so now, finally, without further ado, let's dig in. Kohelet ben David Melech Birushalaim. So we mentioned we don't really want to get too much more into authorship here, but you know, this is a title of Kohelet and we know that later on the word Kohelet appears in the book, so Kohelet is not a proper noun. It's not like saying Michael. Kohelet is a title because it's something that you could call somebody, like HaKohelet, Di-Kohelet. Um, And it's, uh, you know, the, this guy Bickerman, one of these uh, scholars, he says that these are, he compares it to philosophers who sought to teach the right way of life to the common man. that's why the word Kahal is in the Shodesh, because it's supposed to be accessible to even the common man um so let's read uh verse two I joke, Have I built
3: said, uh, something I, I learned on it also i don't know if, i don't want to spoil it but but it also he's he, he's a gatherer as in like I, um, to, to to gather things and he's looking to gather knowledge in that sense
0: wow beautiful i didn't yeah. think of that i i would love to see that unfolding that's that's a great point he's he's yeah. uh makil almost he's gathering wisdom i love that as well yeah um Havil, havalim amar Helet, Havel havalim hakol havel. So what's the, uh, the key word in this in this uh, verse? Hevel. Everything is futility. And who do we know in the Torah whose name was Hevel? Who was he?
2: Hevel in Bereshit.
0: Exactly. He was the brother of Cain. And does anybody know what Hevel means literally? No, it means a fleeting breath. So it's amazing that Hevel in the Torah is called Hevel. It's a foreshadowing of his fate, right? What's his fate? His fate is he, he's going to die. He's like barely there in the story. And then he disappears. He's there for Hevel. He's like a fleeting breath. And uh, this, this commentary uh, translates it as actually as vapor. That it's like a vapor of vapors. It's an extremely fleeting thing. And somehow they do a textual analysis. And that's the word that they get to. Yes.
2: In the, the word comes from the name of the
0: I think that it was certainly the, uh, the name. Oh, oh, the word from the name or the name from the word. I think the name comes from the word, 100%. That's my opinion, but it's a, it's a, good, it's a good question. Um, a couple of points that I want to make here. Notice the alliteration. He's really emphasizing for you. He's, it seems like he's starting at this pit of despair. He's starting at this pit of depression. That's how he's beginning the book. He wants you to feel into using this alliteration, using this repetition to hit you in the face in no uncertain terms with how he's feeling about the state of existence. And he uses alliteration to do that. Um, He wants you to notice the universality of this truth. Not just me, not just my situation. All right. And that's, that's why I mentioned Beck's triad, because it's myself, it's my situation, it's the future, it's everything. It's the And this is this is like the fourth thing in Bextra. It could be an extra thing, even worse than depression. This is like, you know, you have a depressed patient. Most people wouldn't say the world is, I mean, maybe they would. They'll say the whole world is bad, not just my life, but the whole world's life, all of existence is evil. And you know what happens? Those guys that end up shooting up a school. That's if you read the manifesto of the people that shot up uh, Virginia Tech, they were so depressed in their lives that they came to the conclusion that it's better off for existence not to be. So that, how sad is that? Um,
3: Mike, there's another psychological understanding of of depression in the way that it gets lost in the crowd, because it's a lot easier to send it to everything than to actually admit the one specific thing that's bothering you.
0: Absolutely, amen, that's a hundred- I I just
3: want
1: to to echo you here, Mike. Um, I think, you know, uh, this is Alan. It's just such a universal feeling, or, or you know, kind of perception that I think all humans can uh, experience at, at some point in their lives. I mean, we know that we're born, you know, we're we're flesh. We we go to dust. Everything we do eventually amounts to nothing in the end. Uh, you know, everyone dies. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, money and and women and whatever drugs, alcohol. I mean, there's all these things you can do, acquire but it really doesn't matter in the end. And, you know, that is a normal kind of, I think, way of looking at things. You kind of have to snap yourself out of it if you want to have some sanity. But this is, uh, I think, a very natural universal feeling is that what does it all mean? What does it amount to at the end of the day? It's all gone anyway. So, you know, I mean, it's perfect. What a beautiful start to a book.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. It's something that all humans could relate to. This idea of what is it really all worth? Dr. Nasser, I, I think that's a fantastic point. And yeah, I think that's why he's Kohelet. I think that's why the common man can really relate to everything that he's going to say. Um, and we know that the, the Hachamim are going to give their own spin on everything that's going on here. And they really say that his pronouncement was a response to national tragedies for Sail, but it doesn't really seem that that's the Peshat um, and it's th- that it's about human mortality instead seems really to be, um, oh, sorry, that's that's also part of the Midrash. But really, it doesn't just seem to be about a moral thing. It seems to be about the way that the world fundamentally is, not because humans have failed, but humans will always fail. That's kind of his, that's what, what Kohelet is trying to claim. Um, any other points that I want to make here? Let's see. No, okay. I think we're good for, for verse two. Mayitron La Adam. What real value is there for a man in all the gains he makes beneath the sun? This is exactly what you were just echoing, Dr. Nasser, right? What profit can there possibly be? Not monetary profit only, but any profit in any way, in anything that we do, under the sun. Because, like you mentioned, everything will disintegrate, everything is transient, nothing lasts forever. So... You know, there's the unchangeability of natural phenomena. Um, and this is a quen- this question, by the way, is the most important question we've, we've encountered. We're only on verse three, obviously, but this is the question that's going to be answered throughout the book. It's, this is not a rhetorical question. You might think it is. It seems like that from this chapter, maybe. But as we go through the book, we're going to see he really makes a real effort. To answer this question, and it's extremely profound, the journey that he takes you on to answer this question throughout the book. Um, And Kohelet is going to answer this question about the prophet in toil, specifically in hard work, right, Amal. He's going to say there is none, and he's going to say that in chapter two. Well, stay tuned for that, Um, because really nothing can compensate for the amount of misery that we do during our toil even the payoff. And we notice this in our own lives. And that's why I love studying it in a 21st century way, because I noticed in myself, you know, when I was even more perfectionistic, let's say I would get a a great mark on a test. The feeling wasn't, Oh my God, I'm so great. Let me be so happy. It was more of a feeling of relief. It was like, Oh, phew! thank God. I don't have to feel bad that I didn't, that if I didn't do well, it wasn't a positive. So all this toil and all this hard work and all this, pain didn't lead to good feeling it led to lack of negative feeling so if you take that perspective it's like okay so none of it's worth it not the toil and not the reward right how bleak is that so maybe we could take a lesson from that alone stop being so perfectionistic don't pin your value on that which you accomplish but instead allow yourself to dare greatly and try to enjoy the work itself don't only see the work as toil and meaningless. Try to find flow in your work, try to find meaning in what you're doing. Don't wait for the day to be over to enjoy yourself. And of course, what do the hachamim say? hachamim say everything is toil, right? All the world uh, and all these pursuits is toil. But you know what, Kohelet is not talking about Torah, because the toil of Torah, we can't say that there's no yitron in that because the prophet of learning Torah is great. Of course, the Hachamim is not the Peshat in this case, because what Kohelet is saying is the ultimate level of real depth of maybe nihilism. Um, and when it says beneath the sun, uh, it, it's it's not to exclude everything in heaven. It, even though some of the Hachamim want to say, okay, the Hadashamish, there's no Yitron under the sun, there's no prophet, but above the sun and the Shamayim in heaven, that's not what he's saying. the The simple meaning of the text. Is this is universal? This is the entire world that the humans inhabit. That's where this all this wisdom that he's going to say it applies to all of it. Um, nature has this incessant. Uh, uh, hang on, yes.
1: Just question: Since when is the Shemayim above the sun? Because I don't remember that.
0: <laughs> so that's the funny thing. I think uh, when the Hachamim, uh, I don't know if they meant it scientifically or not, but. I guess the spiritual shemayim was was at least conceived as being above the above the sun, but you, I'm
1: you just got, saying I'm not so sure about that. I mean, yeah. in any reference to shemayim, it's the rakia and the water yeah. and the water above and the water below. It doesn't seem necessarily naturally that the shemayim. I know this is a dumb argument to have, but anyway, it just it seems like a stretch. Is all I'm saying.
0: <laughs> no, I I agree 100%. It's definitely a stretch. And it seems that he's just making a universal statement. That's certainly the, the plain meaning of it. Nature has this incessant cyclicity. It's just continually, continuing to cycle. And the feeble human exertions cannot be expected to affect the course of events. That's really the key here. Nothing we do actually makes an impact. It doesn't really make a lasting change in the fate of the world because everything continues in it's cycle, right? Um, And now listen to this. This is going to be very interesting. Uh, The next four or five verses, I want you to notice the four elements, right? So we're saying, everything, everything conceivable is meaningless. Well, what did the ancient Greeks believe was the building blocks of everything conceivable? Water, earth, fire, air, the four elements. We're going to see echoes of all four elements coming up right now. So let's go to verse 4. Dor so ba le'olam That's earth. The earth is always steadfast. It's always going to be there. But you know what? The generations come and go, and the earth doesn't really seem to care very much. Nothing really changes. This human evanescence with the permanence of the physical earth, this is a process like that of the other phenomena described, Right, so um, let's see, right, so edits, the earth world can mean the entirety of mankind, right? So you could either interp- interpret adits as literally the earth itself or mankind, because you could look in other places in the Tanakh where kola adits really means all the people of the land. And it seems to go that in spite of the ceaseless movement of generations, mankind is always the same. That is the key here. That audits is not really the whole point. It's not just about the physical land being the same, but it's that humankind is not changing. Generations come and go, but the totality of what humans are at their fundamental being is not changing. Does anybody know of a, of a, of a, a passage in the Torah or in the Tanakh? Really, I'm thinking in Bereshit somewhere where this is very evident that this is kind of the feeling. Noach. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking of Noah. And for that matter, the whole beginning of the Torah, human nature is the same, right? You, you could watch some of these movies and, and it'll echo the same tragedy. You, you could try to pass on good values, but genetically we're programmed to be like chimpanzees in a certain way. We're, we're, and I gave a, a speech a couple of weeks ago about we're not just chimpanzees. We're also 10% B. We're also like a bumblebee that we have this groupishness and this hivishness. and we have this tendency biologically to want to be part of a group and act selflessly. But that's not the main part of who we are. is is selfish, and humanity has that programmed into them. And God tries over and over again in His human experiment, creating Adam, and then He uh, and they fail. Cain and Abel, they fail. Noah, Dora Pelaga, everybody's failing. And the point is that made by Kohelet. Everything is always gonna be the same because humans are fundamentally chimpanzees. It's a very, very sad thought. Yes. Yeah, but what I like also is that since history always repeats itself and everything is the same in some ways, I feel like we can always learn
2: from history because of it and then see what happened in the past in order to better a future situation.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's the point of the Torah, because you know what? The Torah doesn't end with Torah Plaga. It does continue with the story of Abraham Avinu. God doesn't give up. God invests, and God cares about humanity. And he says, let me invest in this one person, Abraham, because I know him. He is going to be a powerhouse of Siddhaqah Mishpat of the righteousness and justice and through him it will spread to the entire world and we see that the case right now how many more than half the world's population is are abraham abrahamic monotheists so that shows you the truth of what you're saying julie but you know when it comes to uh kohelet he's not really taking that into account his major concern is the fundamental aspect of how we behave and uh you know what maybe maybe you didn't have the benefit of living in the 21st century and seeing how we yeah and seeing history i guess yeah exactly (laughs) okay perfect um, okay, great. But he definitely
2: saw history at this point in time.
0: He saw some degree of history and he
2: saw progress. He saw kingdoms built and and, and but is that
0: progress in his time? There's not really uh, they're not that, that civilized,
2: wouldn't change. I think the concept of progress existed, and yeah, I think every single generation thinks, Wow, look what we did. You know, they had four strong carriages. that's real progress. Yeah, but then
0: you have another holocaust, and it's like, What did it all mean?
2: I think just the fact that people die, right, regardless of what they accomplished, the argument is the same history or not.
0: Yeah, I you know, I, it's a good, it's a good point. I, I think just the the a lot of these genocides and things, you know, it's not just people dying, it's people dying at the hands of violence. I think that could be a very strong argument against progress. You know,
2: I think only when when life is something that's useful and important is violence seen as something that's so Ah
0: uh, Yes, so that's going to be the point. Maybe that's his but, fundamental assumption is that life can be useful and important when lived properly in its time. So that we're going to, we're going to try to focus on that as well. So look at verse number, or up to verse number five. Sorry. So So, the sun rises and the sun sets and glides back to where it rises. And it's really, the word sho'ef is more like it, it pants, it trudges along back, panting back to where it was. It's already, it can't handle this anymore. It's so sick of doing the same cycle because what's the point of all of it? It reminds you of the myth of Sisyphus, right? That's, I think, a very cornerstone of nihilism is this guy Sisyphus is pushing, in the Greek mythology, the boulder up the mountain. And every night, what happens? The boulder rolls back down the mountain. And then every morning, he pushes it back up the mountain and so on and so forth. You could kind of compare... The sun rising and setting to the same thing. Okay, what are you really accomplishing? What
2: about yeah. The word in English, I, don't, I don't, Maybe I don't know the Hebrew so much, but "glides" sounds much more graceful than
0: that. Yes. So the yeah the the commentary here makes a distinction. It says like "shoef" really is more of a panting. Oh, I see. You know, that's the that's the word. Um, so now we will read verse six. <laughs> So that's interesting, because when I first started reading this this verse this morning, I said, okay, it's continuing to talk about the Shemesh. But really, no, it's really talking about the Ruach. But the verse saves the subject of itself till the end of the verse for a certain purpose. I think it's because it wants to kind of show you the unrelenting pull forward. That's the way that the commentary says. Everything is just pulling itself forward. Time and history and everything is just continuing relentlessly but aggressively and but it's it's and but there's no point to it right right? and the, the verse itself that's what i love about structure of the tanakh is that the structure reflects the content everything's just trudging along and pulling along even the subject you have to go till the end of the verse to see what the subject is right so southward blowing turning northward ever turning blows the wind on its rounds the wind returns so the wind also is just going around and around aimlessly and senselessly. Is there a point to the wind? Mm-hmm. All streams flow into the sea. Yet the sea is never full. To the place from which they flow, the streams flow back again. Everything is cyclical. Nothing, it's you know, you think about something being filled up. It, it could be filled up with meaning, filled up with purpose. Maybe there was an end to, the, to it, a goal to it, but no, it just keeps on going and it keeps on perpetuating the same cycle. If you don't understand, you know, it reminds me, you know, people sometimes when I ask them, okay, what do you do? Well, I work hard. Uh, you know, do you, do you like your job? I hate my job. Why do you do it? Do you find meaning in it? Yes, you know, I love my job because my kids will benefit from what I'm doing. And that gives me meaning. And then you ask the guy's kids, do you like, no, I hate my job, but mm-hmm. my, my kids. So what you're perpetuating the same cycle of people not enjoying what they're doing. That's why I insist that I enjoy what I do. So finding meaning in the toil is kind of like putting an end to that ceaseless cycle of meaninglessness because uh, otherwise uh, no one's really enjoying themselves. Yeah.
2: are you sort of validating somebody else? Who didn't like what they did so that you couldn't go read that they
0: were right. Ah, okay, maybe. Maybe I'm giving meaning. And in any case, that gives me even more meaning. Bye. Bye. Baruch Hashem. <laughs> it's a good point, though. I didn't think of that. Um, okay, great. So we'll continue with verse eight.
1: So it's just interesting how pessimistic this is. You know, I mean, I love it. It's beautiful. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he's not mentioning that the, the water is, is uh, you know, uh, nourishing the crops. Uh, that there's fish uh, flowing in the streams, uh, spawning, you know, yeah. that, uh, that there's all sorts of wonderful things happening along this, this way with the cycle. I don't know, the wind is pollinating the uh, flowers. I mean, right, you could look at it, uh, obviously, and come up with a completely different, uh, you know, take on nature and, and the cycles of nature and the seasons and how beautiful it is. Uh, yeah. But this is obviously looking at it from a completely nihilistic point of view.
0: Exactly. That's the uniqueness of it. And I felt as you were speaking, I thought you were quoting Barakhin Afshi. Barakhin Afshi, chapter 106 of Tehillim, which we read on Oshadosh, is a beautiful song about creation celebrating all of this transience. So this is exactly the point I was trying to make earlier, is you could look at it with the wonder of Einstein, or you could look at it with the pessimism of Kohelet. But my point in saying that is not to reject the perspective of Kohelet, because I think we all think the way he does at times. So the point is not we have to make space for this type of thinking and learn the lesson that he's trying to teach us. But also remember that this is not the only perspective. So I think that's extremely great point, Doc. Thank you. Um, okay, great. Verse 8. yegeim دِوَرِيم يَجَعِيمُ لَيُخَالِيشْ daber all such things are weird. Somehow, oh, by the way, we, we just finished. We did water, earth, fire, and air. Right? We did audits, We did ruach. We did shemesh, which is like fire, and then yam is water. So we did all the four elements. That's hakol. Everything is meaningless. So now, what is he saying? And not only that. All such things are weird. Some, no man can ever state them. The eye never has enough of seeing nor the ear enough of hearing it doesn't, stop. it doesn't stop all words are weary human words can't do justice to anything we can't even attempt to uh, to say things and he's not saying oh how amazing we can we, usually we say i'm speechless i can't even put into words how amazing everything is he's saying how annoying and frustrating is this i just want to put it into words i just want to kind of feel like i have some kind of grasp of what's going on i feel like i'm at the end of a fish hook being dragged around and jerked around by existence yes i think
2: it's even more than that i think you saying that the lights don't go off until they really go off maybe
0: yeah. the lights don't go off they
2: don't go off the eye never has enough of seeing you if you close your eyes you're still using your eyes if you're you you can not close your ears there's always ah you're always yes exactly down, it, it
0: never in the sensory input is continuous a hundred percent um so he says it is not the natural phenomena but rather human words that are weary inadequate to communicate the immensity of the repetitions in which the world is locked he says we can't even with the words that i'm saying says kohelet i'm not even fully expressing to you the immensity and the enormity of the amount of time how many billions of years he didn't even know this and he's thinking maybe that in terms of tens of thousands of years or whatever how many billions of years have gone on in the earth where it seems like just this endless cycle of nature is perpetuating itself for seemingly no reason. To add to his point, no man can ever state them. Man cannot speak. This is an emotional reaction. And he's, he's not saying that the phenomena are too manyfold or complex to describe. He's not saying, oh, the phenomena are great, but rather that humans, of course, himself included, are fatigued by the attempt to comprehend and express what they see in the world. Where are Hadja, I I can't even tell you what I'm seeing because it's so unbearably beyond me that, you know, I feel so tiny and I feel like I don't matter. That's not necessarily a good feeling in the terms of the awe and the mystery that we so often like to read it as. Mm -hmm. And then this, uh, Kohelet does not accept these limitations humbly as a religious duty so much as swallow them as a bitter fact. Right, so when he's talking about all this stuff, it's he's not like humbly acknowledging, like you know what, it's beyond me. I don't, I'm I'm not capable because I'm just a human. He's swallowing it bitterly. Bitterly, he's saying, I can't. But you know, I have to just I have to just accept the fact I'm so limited. I can't do any of it. Only that shall happen, which has happened, only that occur, which has occurred, there is nothing new beneath the sun. Everything that you think of that's new, not already happened. You know, I remember this feeling as a young kid. I remember thinking to myself, maybe I'll have a new idea. And I thought I was all specialist in that. And then you realize there's not much you could really think of that nobody's ever thought of before. Even if you're the first generation to know something, there's so many other people you play a game, there's one guy, you you could think you're very good at a certain game, you'll find one guy, you know, when you play Pac-Man and you see the guy with the Chinese letters is number one, you know, in the world, like there's so many people in China, how could I possibly break the high score for, for Pac-Man, any of these things, You you. I wanted to do the invention convention in sixth grade, I wanted to invent something new, sounds all nice and easy, I ended up just putting together multiple inventions of other people and then sticking them together and saying like, okay, here it is. It's a nightstand with a light and a pen holder. Oh, you know, that's not an invention. It's a very bleak thought. And it makes me us feel even smaller and even less capable as humans, because it's like, okay, what do I even have to accomplish? Um, and it's, it's not the natural phenomena, but rather human efforts that are so uh, meaningless And it's all types of events that are like this where like figures in a computer game, says this uh, commentary, whose actions seem to vary with each play, but are really just ephemeral variants of possibilities dictated by the software. It was already the software has programmed into it all the possibilities, whatever we're doing is just one of the many possibilities. And life achievements are an, an illusion. You never really accomplish anything. They're mere echoes of archetypal events. All the accomplishments that you think you're doing and you're so unique in accomplishing are really not personal to you. They're really just uh, things that other people already accomplished and could have accomplished instead of you. This is all, uh, I'm sorry to get to the depth of this depression and nihilism, but I think we have to acknowledge sometimes we feel like this. Sometimes we think, okay, what's the point? Am I really making an impact? You know, uh, it's we like to think that we're, we really are and that Every human being matters and all that, but at the end of the day, these thoughts sometimes pop up. Let's continue. <laughs> right? So uh, look at this new thing. Sometimes there's a phenomenon in which they say, look, this one is a new is a new one. And then they say, no, it occurred long since in ages that went by before us. If you think it's new, it's probably not. It already happened before. Let's continue. The earlier ones are not remembered. So too, those that will occur later will no more be remembered than those that will occur at the very end. So really, nothing you do, not only does it not matter in its time, but also, Events are not remembered by present generations, and our own present will be forgotten by our successors. Mm-hmm. So nothing you do really matters. So I know we only have a couple minutes because uh, we're going a little bit over time, but I think we, it's, it's only a few more verses, so we'll try to finish it. So now the, the rest of the chapter till verse 18, which is the last pasuk, is Kohelet introducing himself and his undertakings. And the interesting thing is he could have started the book with this pasuk, but you know what? He doesn't. He wants to hit you in the face with his philosophy before he really hits you in the face with who he is, which he kind of did a little bit, but now he's going to get more into. So he says, He says, I was king. I have been king. However you want to take that. Um, and we even have, uh, you know, similar inscriptions in ancient uh, um, civilizations. The Phoenician inscription says, I am Kilamua, the son of Haya. I am Azitawada, blessed by Baal, servant of Baal. Uh, you know, So, this is a, a common autobiographical account of kings and uh, of their virtues and exploits. This is the way that kings in the ancient world would introduce themselves. It's a very common uh, structure to it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And when he says was king, it's the, the point here, the real main point of this Pasuk is he's saying, I was king in the past tense, not necessarily because he's no longer king. Well, we, we're, we're arguing he's a fictional character anyway. But the point really is, he's looking back at his life. Oh,
2: he, used to
0: feel like he used to be a king, right? You know, uh, Viva la Vida, right? Oh, I love that. I mean, the, and I think one of the verses in that song is, uh, I was the king, you know, something like that. And it's looking back at life. It's looking about all the exploits and all the amazing things that he accomplished. He says, Who
2: would ever want to
0: be king? Who would ever want to be king? Interesting. And he's, he's looking back at all the accomplishments that he had. And yet, what happens? He, he's, he's ending off with this nihilistic philosophy towards the end of his life. So that's the saddest part of it. Uh, verse 13. I set my mind to study and to probe with wisdom All that happens under the sun, an unhappy business, that which God gave men to be concerned with. He said, even my attempt at understanding, even the wisdom that I'm trying to give over or the wisdom that I'm trying to use and amass in my life. That is like a curse given by God, because we're going to see soon with more wisdom, the more you're able to understand just how deep the nihilism goes. The more wise you are, the the deeper the depth of meaninglessness that you can comprehend within this perspective, of course. I also think the more wisdom you have, the deeper the level of beauty that you can perceive in the world. But of course, we're focusing still on his perspective, so let's give it a little bit more of a shot. Um, And this is very interesting. Kohelet is when he says, and of course, it's, they thought that the heart was the seat of the mind. That's why it says, I set my mind. But he is, Kohelet is watching his mind at work. And his heart is essentially his rational faculty. So he's using all his strength of all his wisdom. And he's watching his mind at work. It's very meditative. Because when you meditate, and I'm glad I'm bringing you up meditation. What's the point? Meditation is like a, a clear sky. That's like your consciousness. And thoughts are like clouds passing by that clear sky. And your job is simply to, to observe the thoughts rather than judging them, rather than going too far into them, just let them pass like clouds. So the beauty of this is that, you know what? Maybe meditation is a very clear uh, you know, solution to what he's going through. You don't have to engage these thoughts. I heard a great quote from the Dalai Lama, actually. He says, thoughts are like mangoes. You, know? you go to the store, you pick up a mango, you see there's a blemish on it, you put it back. The next mango you pick it up, beautiful mango, you put it in your basket. I want this mango. Thoughts are the same way. You you think a thought, it's not a nice thought, you know it's a bad thought, you know if you go down that rabbit hole, it's going to be a bad mango. So you let it go, you put it back. So I think and then other thoughts are nice thoughts. You could go into them and think and cultivate those. That everyone has bad thoughts. The key is not not having bad thoughts. It's about how do you respond? When you have bad thoughts, do you allow the bad thoughts to continue to perpetuate on or like a, like an ugly mango, do you put it back and say, not for now. And the biggest illusion, and this is something that gave me so much solace the other night, I was listening to Alan Watts, the illusion of fear. What's the big sketch. What's the big scam of fear. We feel guilty. If we don't, we're not afraid. If we don't address our fears in our mind, constantly, we feel a little guilty. We think, well, you know, Maybe my fears are looking out for me. Maybe if I address my fear, I'll, you know, I'll be in a better position. That is the biggest illusion in the world. And only when you dispel that idea, because what's going to happen? It's just one thought leads to another, and one fear leads to another. It never ends. That's the big illusion. So the, the key here really is, when a, when a fear comes up, let it go. Let it dissipate. Don't hold on to the fear. Don't try to keep the fear in mind. And don't try to entertain it just out of guilt, but rather recognize it immediately. Say your fear, I know your name, I'm going to let you go. Um, okay, we have a couple more verses. I'm sorry to keep you guys extra.
2: To do that though, Mike, I think you have to address the
0: back. I think eventually you, know, you, you think have it, to
2: you do it. the it back, it's always going to be lingering.
0: You're right. You can sit yeah. down and, and allo- so, you know, Jordan Peterson recommends allocate 10 minutes a day and write down your thoughts, your fears during the day. And then come back to them during those 10 to an hour, even if you want. But there's no point in 24 hours a day
2: of worrying, of course.
0: Absolutely. Exactly. Sorry, I'm just going to uh, continue because we're a little bit pressed for time. Um, so this is an unhappy business. It's a really sad thing that we have to go through all of these these uh, thoughts. Right. Uh, we're up to verse. 14. I observed all the happenings beneath the sun and I found that all is futile and pursuit of wind. Right? Everything, nothing really matters. All these happenings, all these ma'asim. So it's not the, necessarily the works of man, but even the events of the world are meaningless. We said already that the, the things that humans are doing are meaningless, but not just that. Also, the, the unfolding events that happen. also meaningless. So that's an added layer of nihilism going on here and depression. They're simply not within the scope of his present concerns, says the author, right, that these everything else when it comes to repentance and good deeds and study of Torah, which the Midrash tries to bring in, of course, again, that's not something that that, uh, he's concerned with right now. Let's read verse 15. A twisted thing that cannot be made straight, a lack that cannot be made good. Something that is ruined, something that's not good can never be fixed, right? And this re- reappears later in the book, but this is so interesting. There was an Egyptian sage called Ani and the Egyptian sage uses uses the twisted stick as a metaphor for a foolish or perverse pupil who he insists can be educated. And if you, you could kind of hit that, that stick back into shape and make it educated, make it less crooked and more straight. And the quality of events, rather, however, it seems that this is not talking about humans being crooked and needing to be strained out. But events themselves are mi'uvat, not human corruption. If this was a moral thing, you could say, well, maybe we could teach people how to be better people. But no, that's not what Kohelet's saying. He's saying events, events who don't have a soul, the event. I'm not talking about the morality of people, which could be influenced. I'm talking about the way things unfold, those world events that happen, meaningless, and they cannot be fixed, um, and they're all senseless, cannot be improved, and you know what? And they also are God's doing, and that we're going to see that later on in the in the in the Sefer. Um, okay, we're almost done. A Couple more pesukim. Sorry. Okay, so verse 16, I believe. Yes. I said to myself, Here I have grown richer and wiser than any that ruled before me over Jerusalem, and my mind has zealously absorbed wisdom and learning. He says, all these people, and by the way, this is another argument against the idea that it's Shilamo. Shilamo was the second ruler of Jerusalem. And he's saying all the rulers before me, because Al Yerushalayim implies a ruler. It was only David if it was Shalomo. So clearly this is not actually Shalomo. Rather, it's this fictional character. So really, so I said to myself, I've grown richer and wiser, and my mind has zealously absorbed wisdom and learning. I know everything there is to know. I read all the books on wisdom. And these are my thoughts. Really, nothing matters. And this is a, a, he's successful in a way. He's so successful at reading everything that he knows everything there is to know at the time, but his success leaves him at the end with this deep sense of depression and malaise. Um, and he used his, his own powers of reasoning, of course, um, and it's quality and quantity here that we're seeing that he's, that he's employing, and yet it's still all meaningless. Um, okay, so now we'll read 17, the penultimate verse, until I let you guys go. And so I let my mind to appraise wisdom and to appraise madness and folly. And I learned that this too was pursuit of wind. How interesting is that? I thought this was so intriguing. Not only did he set out to understand wisdom, he said, you know what? Maybe, maybe the real wisdom is in folly. He actually allowed himself to think that. He said, I didn't find wisdom in what I thought was wisdom. Maybe if I descend into the crazy folly, you know, if you study modern art or postmodernism, that's like, you know, let, let's descend into that. Maybe that's real wisdom. Maybe post truth is wisdom. Maybe you go and you see, uh, you know, you go to an art exhibit and it's just somebody's uh, dropped banana on the floor and that's art. Everyone's going around to look. Maybe that folly is where wisdom is. He says, you know what? Gamzir Ayuruah. Also, that's meaningless. So the wisdom is meaningless and the folly is meaningless and it's all meaningless. It's so, it, it rings so true in today's day and age because I think that's the reason why people descend into modern art. The, the, the stupidity, in my humble opinion, of what some of these modern artists are doing is really an attempt at doing what he's doing. They're trying to find meaning even in folly because they could not find meaning things that you would think traditionally are meaningful yes you
2: think it's because he's so unsure of everything and those people that are involved in madness and folly or maybe seem so sure in what they're doing if you go to an art exhibit that's all ridiculous art people will be so sure this is a masterpiece it's the most beautiful thing like you see crazy religions where people are so 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 into what they're doing mm-hmm. somebody like him who's so depressed and the answers that he has are all on quite, are all so so open and unanswered yeah look at these people like oh maybe there is something in this blank canvas that says something about society
0: there's a humility in it surely i I definitely could agree i listen i don't think there's anything wrong with uh with with postmodernism and all that i just think that it's a little bit uh i don't know i'm still saying it's crazy a little nuts yeah the
2: the sureness that people have yes we don't like dogmatism agreed that makes that that made it maybe appealing to him in this search
0: Yes, agreed. You have to, you listen, give everything a chance. If you were dogmatic about our search, search for truth, is it really truth? Agreed, 100%. See if I'm missing anything, any points I wanted to make about that pasuk. Nothing else that I wanted to say. Finally, we're on our last pasuk. And I think this is probably one of the most powerful verses of the entire uh, chapter. For as wisdom grows, vexation grows. To increase learning is to increase heartache. Because he saw that the more he knows, the more he realizes he knows nothing. And the more he knows, the more he realizes that everything is completely meaningless. Because if you're a Buddha, if you don't understand anything, it's very easy for you to believe everything is hunky dory, everything is peaches and cream. That's why. Yeah, like I think, English. Ignorance is bliss. Like, you know. Ignorance is bliss, exactly. And you know, a lot of atheists today are the most educated people. And I think that's exactly the point of, of Kohelet. The more educated you are, the easier it is to become an atheist because you start seeing the meaningless parts that don't fit into the dogma of religion. And I think personally where my own journey has led me is that I had to hit against a lot of different things that religion taught me and tear them down and build them back up based on my own understanding in order to really get back to my my fullest sense of religiosity. And thankfully I was able to do it in my my own way. I think everyone has their own journey, but that's the difficult part is, you know what? You're right. The more wisdom you accumulate, the more you realize that not everything is uh, quite as they taught you in second grade, you know? Haman didn't actually have this triangle hat. People die. People die. And, and it's meaningless sometimes. It seems completely meaningless. You can't put meaning into the Holocaust. Any attempt to do it would be a violation of Sefer Iyov. Right? So I'll just make a couple of final comments that he makes here. Kohelet learned that too much wisdom provokes irritation and frustration. Nonetheless, he will later laud wisdom's benefits. Um, And Ibn Ezra explains that one who understands the world will suffer from knowing that his children will will eventually die. His wealth will be lost and the day of his death is placed between his two eyes. Meaning you see the entire span of what your life is and you see that it's so limited. And then more to the point, Mendelssohn, Moses Mendelssohn, one of the uh, philosophers and rabbis from a couple hundred years ago, identifies the cause of vexation as the inability to attain the desired knowledge of hidden things especially with regard to divine providence. I think this has kind of, kind of been simmering under the surface this whole time. What does it mean? What's the point of all of it? Why is there something rather than nothing? This is the question that Einstein was asking. This is the, the human condition, the fundamental question that we really all ask at a certain stage. Not only just why did God do it, but why is, isness? Why is? That's the question. Why is? And... That's the question that this book is trying to solve. And two more points. Still, it is not so much wisdom's failure as it is su- its success that arouses Kohelet's chagrin. For, as he will de- demonstrate by his own experience, wisdom forces its possessor to perceive life's absurdities. The more wise you are, the more absurd things seem. It's not as easy to buy into some of the worldviews that were previously taught. Thus, it is an unhappy business, but it is not a task that Kohelet avoids. So I think I want to end on that point because it's such a courageous thing. If nothing else, there's tremendous courage in addressing and speaking out these thoughts. And, you know, people who try to quash and and get rid of and, and throw away these thoughts, it ends up coming back up. So I think you don't have to follow fear 24 hours a day. But on a Tuesday night from 8.30 to 9.30, we could come and you could ask all your questions about meaninglessness. Other than that, try to live a good life. Try to be happy. Try to relax yourself. Meditate. Be mindful. But allow space for these questions and acknowledge the fact that these are important questions. Thank you very much, guys. Of course, if anybody has questions, feel free to stay. I don't want to keep you guys too long. If you want to log off, feel free. Thank you so, so much for, for logging on. I really do appreciate it. And uh, any questions, you guys, uh, uh, here's the time. Michael. Yes. Um, do you think that last pasuk about increasing learning is to increase heartache? Um, do you think that was almost like a sort, like a biblical source for like ultra-orthodox um, schools of thought both in the past and now that kind of um, uh, promotes in ignorance is bliss we don't ask questions we just blindly believe and do kind of attitude. Oh, no doubt. I think no doubt this is as Rabbi Sacks says said Shalom," the most subversive book in the whole Tanakh and you know I'm, I'm i'm i i don't know how much the the ultra orthodox i guess that's the point is the midrashim kind of Kedushify the book and they make it you know palatable to the religious mind and they completely interpret it in a different way than we've been interpreting it but but yes i agree i think that this is the fear the fear is that you go otd you go off the derech when you start noticing a lot of these things and uh yeah that's that's probably why a lot of the the most um, right-wing people will not allow these questions because they know that these questions might not necessarily lead to the answers that, you, that, you're, that you're taught from a young age. But in my humble opinion, I think if your faith is built so fragilely, then what is it really worth? I think we're obligated, like Abraham, to smash the idols like the Midrash would say and be an iconoclast to whatever it was and rebuild it. Obviously, I wouldn't say stop keeping alacha ever, but I think everything should be questioned in order to strengthen it. I agree. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. I love that comment and question. Any other questions?
2: Yeah, we don't think he's really um, truthful with uh, for as wisdom goes, grows to increase science, to increase heartache. I mean, he's playing a character in a way. And hopefully we're going to come out of this on the other side and say, as wisdom grows, vexation goes away. And the, the so is, uh, it's
0: funny. Learning. You just made me realize that my own quest has, you remember the class I gave a couple weeks ago on Shabbat was exactly this idea. Rationalism is pretty meaningless at the end of the day. Rationalism is not the path towards real happiness and God. At the end of the day, rationalism is so limited in terms of leading us towards God leading us towards what it really means to be a human. And I think part of this book will be realizing wisdom, Hage, it's, it's enough philosophy. Immanuel Kant was the biggest nerd out there. He didn't lead to real, you know, who, who did lead to it? Hume, because Hume realized the limits of rationalism and philosophy. And he said, basically, just experience things. And that's essentially what Kohelet is going to say.
2: But those are wise. Right, they and it's it's
0: wise, it's but wise it doesn't up. come from philosophical reasoning like he's discussing. It comes from raw experience.
2: We're talking about raw experience to give over that point, which just feels sure. reasoning.
0: Sure, sure, but we could get into the paradox Bye. of what we're saying another <laughs> time. But yes, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. That's a great point, Don. I have to keep this in mind because this is very fundamental to the rest of the book. Uh, Any other questions? Anybody?
2: Just, yeah, Mike, I would just ask, um, I know that um, usually we read this book on Sukkot. Is there anything that puts you to teach it now?
0: Uh, good question. Um, the the transience of Sukkot, I think, is the reason that we read it, right? We go from dirat keva to dirat aray. We go from permanence to temporariness. I think that's what this whole book is about. Um, why am I teaching this now? I'm teaching this now because Morris Franco and Al Miz were reading it, and they loved it. And it, it, it popped into my head. And I said, <laughs> it would be a great idea to teach. So thank you for that inspiration, Mars. Oh, I
3: can't believe I'm an inspiration.
0: You're, oh. you're always my inspiration. Well, you know that, you know that, man. I'm
3: honored. Love um, oh, you, bro. Hi, Ezra. I wanted to talk about hey. this last line, the, this anger that we get, perhaps, um, from learning. And the more we learn, and it, and it can be frustrating. People are too smart for God, I, I say. You've
0: seen that firsthand in, in our conversations, Boris. Yeah. Mars yeah. has yeah. borne the brunt of my anger sometimes, and nothing personal, but in these philosophical debates. And he's had to tell me, Mike, had you with the brain stuff. It's not going to get you anywhere. Sorry, I'm continue.
3: No, yeah, there's <laughs> a lot of people, are not, not calling anyone, but but and um, a lot of people that I've, I've talked to seem too intelligent for God. and and it's very sad it's kind of the other end of the spectrum and you don't want to be the person who like blindly follows anything but but just the understanding of you know I think it's this whole book is understanding our smallness and the the humbleness we
0: don't want to criticize wisdom too much because religiosity without wisdom exactly with religiosity without wisdom is very ugly but wisdom without religiosity is cold and dry so you have to find the balance for you
3: he tells you to stop reading the book like someone this is like yeah just stop learning guys just leave
0: (laughs) exactly i love that it's great it's the ultimate boss move
3: i think you you also there was some there was a point that we missed um when he says i am kohelet king and you were comparing it to all the kings of the time using it to to show how it was similar I think it was also like a big joke like yeah all this stuff I'm complaining about and I was king like and I had everything anyone could ever dream of I'm a, yeah. I'm a king and, a yet I'm, and yet I'm complaining you know yeah.
0: and that's the point I think only yeah. he can have the right to do so because he's been there he's been around the block and if I would say it it's like okay Mike you're not Derek Jeter. You, don't, you didn't accomplish all these great things to have the privilege to say, it. To, because who knows, what if you did all that great stuff and accomplished all those, those material things? Okay, then you would have the ability to say it, but right now you don't, you don't know how great the material stuff is.
3: And it's, and it's very much a, a symptom of affluenza. Like this guy's wealthy. He has the time to collect all these things and the time to think about these problems. And that's where you get first world real issues of, of depression and suicide. Which don't show up in third world countries nearly as much.
0: One hundred percent. That's you know uh, we live in this age of profound meaninglessness and sadness and lack of happiness, and it's very surprising because we have the highest standard of living than ever before. But it's because of anime. Yes.
2: So when you're intellectually challenged and thrown into all these questions, how do you stay on the day if you you go you like leave it a little bit and experience?
0: So I, I, I would say you should never stop practicing something just because of questions. So Rabbi, Rabbi Norman Lamb shalom, said the difference between a philosopher and a heretic is that the philosopher is going to have all these questions and he's going to go pray min ha when the afternoon comes. Even with the questions, the heretic is going to stop praying min So that's the only difference. I think you have the right to think whatever you want to think. You know, somebody might smack me for saying that in some other shul. But you know what? I think think whatever you want. You're going to think things that and you can't control that. But at the end of the day, you do have control over your actions. We're a religion of action, not a religion of belief fundamentally. So I think for me personally, I've had questions about a lot of things, but I've always tried my best and I haven't always been the best, but I've tried my best to keep halacha as well as I can, because I think that it, it binds me to at the very least to my family and my society and always it really was binding me to god even if i didn't notice it at the time yes
2: oh, i was just i don't want to throw you under the bus for this but, no please but uh when it comes to the, the analogy i'm used
0: of, to being under there
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the analogy with the uh, the philosopher and the heretic and the and the philosopher goes and prays my after um uh is the implication that the philosopher is questioning whether or not uh, mincha is worthwhile absolutely right that's the so point he's questioning whether or not is worthwhile and then yet praise mincha it seems like he came to the conclusion that he kind of shouldn't but then does Doesn't isn't that it's not an, an entirely
0: rational thing i think mean, that's the point right. is that i'm acknowledging not everything i do is completely rational but yet i do it that you know
2: doesn't seem like I isn't it doesn't is rational.
0: it doesn't have to be you don't it have to do. Have to
2: seem like it's rational, but...
0: It doesn't have to be irrational, but it doesn't have to be completely rational. If your connection with God is completely irrational, then what is it really?
2: Okay, wait. Rational or irrational? If someone li- <laughs> if someone likes it, that's, that's a rational reason to go about doing it.
0: If somebody likes it, and ha. Somebody likes
2: doing it, if somebody likes different. So up, this is what you know, we, we exactly debated
0: last week. A little bit. It's I, I think it's a semantic argument that, that we're having. I think we're really exactly agreeing exactly. on the point, but we're just yeah. defining terms a little different. Right. It's, it's
2: if you like something, do it. Right. No, but it's don't do it. You know? Yes, like Julie. That's
0: no. Yes. Yeah, so it's also like we.
2: You... Oh yeah. No, no. I'm saying it's like what you said before, also with um um what's not with um jordan peterson
0: how he says like okay yes. write down write it down and then look at it and review it but have it written down so that you can go on with your day and still do everything that you're doing but then you'll review what you were negative about at a later time so exactly. it's more like
2: you're still going with the motions i guess or doing everything exactly. and then you're reviewing it
0: later you you continue with your day because you know philosophers write things like there are no other people that's the name of a philosophical work there are no other people to whom is he writing this book you know and and who will he blame when he doesn't get tenure you know that was the joke that i read in this book, and it's so funny because that's the point is that we never allow philosophical implications and the ramifications to affect our actions Mm -hmm. so that's exactly the point julie is that jordan peterson's daughter had rheumatoid arthritis it was extremely stressful for him and if he focused on this all day and all night, he would never sleep and never eat and never anything. Mm-hmm. So he and his wife set aside an hour a day to worry about it and plan about it. And they restricted off the rest of the day to go about their lives because otherwise they would have imploded. Yeah,
2: yeah. of course, yeah. Happiness is a complete elimination of doubt. I Like when you're like, you have to allow yourself to space to doubt for a little bit. But like when you're not, in this mode of being doubtful and thinking about all the stuff like you're able yes to live your you're like i'm like are you because i think doubting and thinking about the past and the future and not being in the present
0: yeah doubting that. is an intellectual thing mm-hmm. and if you remove yourself from the intellect then you could just kind of be
2: right
0: you know during this class i and i notice myself i'm very in my head i'm trying to it's hard you have to speak out things you have to be a little intellectual in a way to discuss these things But I also want to, like, my Sam Harris mind and my meditative mind is like, okay, don't let this pass you by. Enjoy the right now. So I'm able to try to sink into that. It's a balance. It's tough. We get better and better as we go on, you know. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? All right, guys. Thank you so, so much. Hazaku Baruch. And uh, that was really a pleasure to have all your comments, to have you all here. Uh, Let me stop sharing. Here we go. Thank you. Perfect. All right. Thank you very much, guys. Mike. Um, yes.
3: After great class. Beautiful.
0: Love you, Ma. Okay. Thank we, you. We gotta discuss more, Ma. Hundred percent. All right. Yeah. There he goes. <laughs>